I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. Welcome, dear reader, to the Book Jockey Podcast, where an ex-lit major reads and analyzes literature in the public domain for no one's amusement. Currently, we're reading Powers of Darkness by Vladimir Osmundson, which is the lost version, Icelandic version of Dracula, written in 1901. Um, it seems that this is really taking off. When I Google Powers of Darkness, when I first got the book, there wasn't much out there, but there are now whole websites analyzing um, the history of this book. The Wikipedia page is even more fleshed out than it was before. Um, a lot more reviews online about it. Um, and since this was published in 2017, there's even been another version, another lost Dracula translation released as well. Um, not from Iceland. Uh, so yeah, this is kind of trendy. And uh, as I mentioned last episode, um, I think the trend factor is also enhanced by the fact that uh, the BBC Dracula is now available on Netflix. So um, hopefully people are out there searching Dracula in the podcast search bar and maybe they they find this and can share my obsession with all things vampire um, with me, or all things specifically Dracula, Dracula with me. Um, uh, I, I'm not going to be the, the best podcast host. Uh, it's been a month since my last episode release. Right now it's February 5th, 2020, 9 p.m. exactly. And my last episode was January 6th. So I don't really do very well in life with uh, sticking to my resolutions and um, commitments to myself. I'm much better at sticking to commitments that are placed upon me. Maybe I could do some kind of psychology that I could trick myself into thinking that if you guys actually are real and care, then maybe that'll give me incentive to make this. But um, uh, I should just stick with it because I should have a great incentive to read this book. Um, I think part of the reason also was just um, not only is life busy and things interrupt you. But um, I I think that uh, I'm not really drawn into this version as much. Um, I'm already noticing some of the major differences. Um, they mentioned in the introduction, which I kind of read briefly in the first episode, that this intro content of Jonathan Harker's travels and um, his stay within Dracula is 63% longer and Bram Stoker's version. And I'm already kind of noticing that. It's just a lot more drawn out. We're not getting into the action um, uh, as we were back with um, Bram Stoker's of kind of flitting back and forth between journal entries and letters uh, back home. Um, hearing a lot from um, Wilma, who uh, in this book is uh, the Bram Stoker's version of Mina, um, or other characters. We're really just focusing specifically still on his stay, um, this man's name Thomas instead of Jonathan Harker. Um, we're still there. And um, 
that's that's fine and good, but we're, it's just kind of slow. It is a little bit more slow moving. Um, another big major difference, which I'll get into now, is that um, we will not be seeing the uh, the three uh, seductress uh, vampire brides from the Bram Stoker's version. Here we are going to be focusing on a, a one unnamed woman who is uh, seemingly less predatory outright because she's already enchanting Mr. Harker um, and their, their small chance encounters. And in the last episode, we learned more about uh, her background story and who she is um, and uh, who she is related to Dracula. And I'll kind of summarize that. So where we last left off is when Count Dracula was showing Thomas Harker a gallery of old family portraits. He's like, come with me on a walk through this large castle and see basically my old style photo album with these huge family portraits going back generations. Um, and as they happened upon a portrait that looks strikingly similar to the woman who currently resides with Dracula, who John, or I'm sorry, Thomas Harker has come across like two or three times at this point. Um, he's interestingly only come across her in private, not um, with Dracula in the room. Their encounters are uh, very short and sweet, and um, she's already mentioned to Thomas on uh, their first meeting that she feels like a prisoner. Um, he doesn't really know where she stays or what her deal is. Uh, at this time, but he has already mentioned that he uh, finds her to be irresistibly beautiful. Um, he kind of loses his senses when she's around, staring at her, uh, and gets tongue-tied, you know, all of that. Um, so I believe that she's not yet been named. Uh, I, I was kind of looking, spinning through the pages and looking online, and I don't see anywhere that she is actually named yet. Um, and as they go down the hallway... Thomas notices that one of the paintings looks just like this woman and says, whoa. And Dracula says that the portrait is of an old cousin. So as you may remember earlier in the book, uh, Dracula stated that the woman who lives with him believed she was her own great grandmother. So now we already figured that that is because she is of the generation of what would be her great grandmother Obviously, vampires um, are eternal, um, and it sounds like if she, if Dracula's concocting the story that she believes she's her own great-grandmother, that maybe she's a little bit of denial um, that she needs to kind of keep this a secret from mortals. <laughs> maybe uh, she kind of just spouts this fact that I am this woman from this other century quite openly. Um, so Dracula had to basically make her sound like she was insane. Um, and he says that the woman in the portrait is an old cousin of his, um, of the Dracula clan. Um, and that he starts telling this tale of how this cousin married a relative in the Dracula clan and how incest was common in their family as it kept the bloodlines pure. Uh, he even insinuated that bad things would happen if they attempted to marry outside their own clan. Um, and it's interesting, uh, 
the journal entry, Thomas Harker notably says that he was horrified. Um, and Dracula then insinuates that if they didn't marry within their clan, it usually ended badly. Um, and that Dracula had something triumphant in his voice when he said that, which I don't know what we're to take from that um, or what we're to take from the emphasis on incest, but it is what it is. Um, maybe, again, it's hearkening back to um, the theme, which is also in the original Dracula, of foreigners and others doing things differently and just emphasizing, really strongly emphasizing that cultural divide. So as he continued, um, it was basically she married someone within her own clan um, and that her and her cousin of the Dracula clan had a very fiery, passionate love. It was described as biting as the bitterest hatred. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. They, they, I find it fascinating um, all these times that love is described as kind of that fiery passion is that it's both sides of the coin. Um, complete and utter, you know, lust and love and um, ad the ability to admire one another and respect one another, but also um, both sides of the coin of being just fiery and angry. And if I can't have you, then I will tear you down type of attitude. Um, I actually kind of love that shit. I just think it's great. It reminds me of being a teenager in my early 20s and how that sort of emotional angst and drama was actually quite addicting and, and fun, you know? Even though at the time you were screaming and angry and crying and just acting like every single relationship was life or death, Romeo and Juliet type of situation. Well, maybe you didn't, but I did. Um, so on the surface level, for an outside perspective, it may have seemed painful. Um, the day-to-day -day drama and having that to focus on was sort of addicting. And now that I've matured and I have a stable relationship, which I love a lot and I would have it no other way, um, I've noticed that I am an adult. I don't have those, those emotional roller coasters as much anymore or need that type of emotional people anymore. I have transferred that sort of kind of addiction to drama onto work. Um, I think we all kind of need something that um, creates some turmoil to keep us interested. I don't know. I just always love love stories like that. That sort of um, fiery outburst of passion. So anyhow, uh, long story short, the one cousin, uh, and if you haven't figured this out by yet, it seems to be obvious that this is about Dracula himself and the woman who lives with him to this day, the unnamed woman. Um, he found out that she was having an affair and locked her and her lover in a room together for a long time, several months, providing them with only food and water. 
Uh, And eventually the lover was heard to have screamed, help, she's killing me, and uh, committed suicide by leaping out the window. So we don't know um, what she did. Uh, She was described earlier when he was describing the cousin. He mentioned that she was um, someone who sought after power. Um, Men were almost like playthings for her. She when her first husband died, it was said that she was obvious she was going to get another husband because she would never um, be one to be meek and wait around type of attitude. Um, uh, so anyhow, if this, if this is the woman that the same woman that lives with them to this day, uh, no wonder she feels like a prisoner. She provides a lot of resentment to him for what he initially did to her, blocking her up for months. Um, we don't know if, Something came out in her while she was locked up. Uh, maybe something was unleashed within her, like her vampirism. I don't really know how that would work. And, and quite frankly, in the original um, story of Bram Stoker's Dracula, how one becomes a vampire is not really obviously stated. In the uh, 1990s movie version, um, I thought that the the added plot of he became a vampire due to a sort of a pact with the devil, um, being angry at God or in the church for not allowing his wife Mina to be um, accepted into heaven due to her suicide was fan-fucking-tastic. That's a beautiful plot line. And added so much to obviously making Dracula a sympathetic character. Um, And I'm assuming it all kind of just goes to show how art evolves over time. How we've learned so much about the importance of narrative and character development over um, centuries and generations to, to know that... Um, your this basic macabre horror story didn't have to be just a horror story. Uh, it could be more. It could be much more nuanced and beautiful if it did have that element of sympathy. Um, I guess similar to Frankenstein. Uh, so I, yeah, I, it. Um, I'll go ahead and shut up and start reading. I cannot describe the impact that his story had on me, as it seemed to be absolutely free from any human sentiment. He lowered his voice as if noticing my reaction to what he was saying. No one knows what she had been up to, but the window was shut again, and all was quiet once more. The Count waited a few days before he went to her, after her lover had leapt to heaven or hell. Nobody knows what came to pass between them, but it is said that he kept going to her every night at the same hour. This probably was a joyful time for him, though perhaps not quite so much for her, but who knows? No one saw or heard anything more, but a few months later, he had women picked up from the village to provide the death service. She was lying dead in her bed, 
Any more than that, people did not know. She was dressed in a garment similar to the one shown here in the portrait and placed in her coffin by command of the castle's master. She rests here in the chapel along with her family members, but as you see, my friend, she is still as beautiful as ever. Uh, so he's obviously regarding the portrait there. As you see, she's still as beautiful as ever, but she literally is still as beautiful as ever. She's literally down the fucking hall. How awful to hear this, I said, trembling with such distress that I could barely manage to shake it off. Had I been a woman, I would have believed I was going hysterical. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Um, I definitely remember that from the original Bram Stoker's Dracula. This almost constant emphasis on how a woman perceives stress and how a woman is able to handle fear and how a woman's mind uh, can cope with this and that. Um, it is, it, it's almost like hitting you over the head with it. Um, it's been a little bit less so far, uh, so far with this Icelandic version, but then again, we haven't really even gotten to know Wilma or, um, I believe they kept Lucy's name Lucy yet. Um, but it is just constant and it's a sign of the times. Um, uh, one thing that I, I suppose credit should be given to Bram Stoker for is that he depicts uh, Mina as intelligent, emphasizes that she is basically able to keep up with them, um, provides them with clues and helps and transcriptions. Um, he mentions several times about how smart one has to be in order to know how to write shorthand <laughs> um, and how she even helps her husband, Jonathan Hargard, with his lawyer service and how um, uh, Van Helsing says she has a man's mind. Um, that being said, though, she's also seen as, um, like Lucy crying a lot. Uh, the men, she, she's constantly fawning in her journal entries about how, oh, thank God these brave men are here to help me. Thank God that they're sacrificing their lives to help us because they're so strong and brave and noble. Um, and they're keeping me back and not letting them help me any further to keep me safe. Um, I, I think that I'll allow it, <laughs> um, because I believe that part of the, the point, um, with the writings was to, to also reflect a sign of the times, um, about, maybe the changing uh, view of womanhood. Um, Mina is often quoting the the new woman, um, the the ways that uh, women are expected to be and change. She she and Lucy mention it a couple times. Um, so it's possible that Bram Stoker was just emphasizing um, this gendered role um, as a just reflection of, I don't know. I started making this point and then I kind of lost my focus there. 
let's just keep on reading. I need to shut up. Um, so then he's <laughs> believing that he would go hysterical if, a, if he was a woman. Um, I had never felt like this. Had I suddenly caught a glimpse into the bowels of the earth with all its demons and blazing brimstone down below, as medieval people believed, I would not have reacted worse. So holy shit, he's, you know, either the author's extremely hyperbolic or this Thomas Harker dude is like really like weak-willed, <laughs> weak, weak man because, um, He's literally saying that just hearing a story about a woman and her lover locked up and the man committing suicide is l worse than if the ground were to crack open and he were to see the bowels of hell. Just hearing that story is worse to him. Yes, he said, it was a major mistake on his part. So Dracula saying it was a major mistake on his own part. Um, the people in the region, the Czechs, the Tatars, the Vlachs, and all the ragtag and bobtail who have swarmed to this country that we Schleslers are born to rule have always feared and held a grudge against us, particularly as members of the Dracula family. Now they had fond new gossip to enrich their chatter. And though we ignore the serpent that creeps on the ground, it will bite nonetheless. I have learned this and the hard way. This is why I now live like a recluse with owls and crows nesting in the towers of my forefather's castle. Perhaps people have also tried to smear my name while talking to you, dear friend. Come out with the truth now. What have they told you about Dracula before you came here? Nothing worth mentioning, I said candidly. But, but, they insinuated all the more, he said. Oh, these slaves, these vagabonds, they fear Dracula, and for good reason. Vengeance and curses shall bite them long after he has found himself a new homeland. Uh, he's talking in present tense there. Come on, my dear friend, he said, slowing down and changing his tone. On another occasion, let us look at this picture again in daylight. He held up the candlestick, illuminating the portrait one last time, and then he sh showed me more paintings, telling me something about each of them. It was a strange collection of family portraits spanning over centuries. Many of the paintings were amateurishly executed and some poorly made, though others were masterpieces. What intrigued me the most was the unbroken and gradual perfection of the two or three human likenesses that consistently emerged, generation after generation. It seemed as though the clan had reached its greatest bloom with the Count and the ravishing noble lady in the magnificent portrait he had described. The same facial features as possessed by the Count could be seen in paintings from different eras, three or four of which looked so much like him that I was taken aback. It is exactly as you say, said the Count. I am a true Dracula. The reoccurring features, the big head with black hair, short neck, unusually broad chest, low forehead, and brown wrinkly skin, even in young men, 
looked very different from modern civilized people. All right. So, wow. Um, the, the sense that the author is conveying of like otherness is bad. Uh, these, these foreigners, um, he describes something that's almost Neanderthal in nature, right? Short, squat, wide, broad, low forehead, brown, wrinkly skin, um, uncivilized, like it's a little bit over the top. Jesus. <laughs> hmm. Next instant is even better. Not even pictures I'd seen of savages had looked less appealing to me. I praised the Count's family for its continuously height heightening beauty. Although he clearly appreciated the compliment, he changed the subject all the same. Yes, my friend, he said, that is just more proof of what I always say, that the strongest must prevail and conquer the world. <laughs> That's what I always say, you know. Uh, yeah, take over. So this goes back into um, some themes that I've read about online of a sort of um, uh, like social Darwin-esque uh, type of thematic vein happening here. Um, so let me go ahead and just read straight from the Wikipedia now. So the the Dracula scholar in his 2014 essay, uh, De Rus, noted that in Mokhtmir Krana, which is what we're reading here, Powers of Darkness, the Count strongly expressed elitist and social Darwinist opinions. While discussing his family portraits at the gallery with Harker, he explains how the strong have the right to rule over the weaker and exploit them. So you guys probably think I planned that. Like, I just was like, I have this quote lined up and at the Wikipedia page already lined up to that right point. I actually did not. That's like a fucking coincidence. And it's pretty awesome. Um, in his analysis of November 2017, uh, Berghorn, I guess another scholar, elaborates on this observation, explaining that the Volkish movement had emerged as a major force in Germany by the 1890s and already had some of the Volkish leaders were advocating killing the mentally and physically disabled as their very existence threatened the purity of the Herrenvolk, the master race. Putting some social Darwinist and racist language into the mouth of Count Dracula was a way of caricaturing the popular social Darwinism with elites in both Europe and United States in the 1890s. Before he goes insane... Dr. Seward thinks of after reading a newspaper about the state of the world, uh, and then he goes on to quote uh, Dr. Seward from later on in the book, so I'm going to skip that because we're not there yet. Um, so anyhow, passages such as these, Burkham believes, reflect the widespread and mood and pessimism of fin de Cell Europe, as the 19th century closed and the 20th century began, as many in Europe believed that civilization was rotten to the core and all that was left for Europe's civilization now was the apocalypse. So, okay, so they're trying to use what Asmundson here is trying to use Dracula as a 
representation uh, as the, the villain foreigner with toxic ideas. Okay. It's going to be hard for me to wrap my head around this because um, over the years I've grown to love Dracula and seen him as, a, again, as I mentioned earlier, a sympathetic character. So this is going to weird me out, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, so Thomas continues in his journal after saying that they look like uncivilized people. Not even pictures I'd seen of savages had looked less appealing to me. I praise the Count's family, family for its continuous... Oh, yeah. I already read that part. Um, so those who are weak are only created to satisfy the needs of others more powerful. The person who knows how to exert his strength will gain supremacy and have everything at his command, beauty, prudence, and knowledge. In the same way that the small seedling growing in the graveyard will gradually become a tall tree with the stuff of a thousand generations, all contributing their strength, comeliness, and other good qualities. As far as I could follow, it was Dracula's law fluttering vaguely through the Count's mind, but he had adapted it in his own way. Oh, he said Darwin's law. I, don't, I read that as Dracula accidentally. While we were discussing this, he doused the lights in the portrait gallery with a long extinguisher, and we left the room in the faint moonlight. I had managed to regain my full composure and was in a serene mood when we came down the stairs and entered into the courtyard, but then I clearly heard someone walking close to us. I turned, but the sound of footsteps seemed to move farther away, and I saw no more then a glimpse of a short, stocky man suddenly disappearing through one of the doors to the corridor. The Count was walking ahead of me, holding the light. What is wrong, my friend, he asked. Why have you stopped? It is nothing, just that I heard footsteps behind us, I said, and I thought I saw someone slip through the door over there by the corridor. It occurred to me that although my bedroom faces the direction of the corridor, I had never heard anyone enter or wander around in it. A man walking here? A man walking here? He asked. You must be kidding. No. It was probably just the echo of our footsteps and your own shadow. But I saw it with my own eyes. I can assure you, my friend, that no living creature sets foot in here at this hour. Unless it was old Natra. Remember, she is the uh, housemaid. But she never comes this way. You said yourself that you do not believe in ghosts. Yes, but here one might be led to believe differently, I said. What you saw was nothing more than a trick of his senses, said the Count. When we reached the living room, everything was prepared as usual. The candles were lit and the dishes were set on the table. The Count invited me to dine, but he said that he himself didn't have an appetite, as he usually does not sup so late. I haven't seen him touch any food since I arrived, but as the master of this estate, he should be able to have his meals whenever he wants, and it would be consistent with his usual manners that he would prefer to eat by himself. With your permission, I will sit here while you eat, he said, taking a seat by the fireplace. I would like to practice my English. Yes, that would explain why he is so talkative with me. His English has progressed a great deal in these past few days. I've noticed that he has unusually sensitive ear for language, 
as he corrects his pronunciation as soon as he hears that mine is different. When I finished my dinner, I seated myself in the chair opposite him. What you said earlier in the hallway reminded me of something, he said. The superstitious cowards here in the surrounding countryside maintain that this castle I live in is full of specters and evil spirits because of how rich its history is. Because here, there is much to remember from the past that the general public does not get to know. I struggle to find workmen, even if I offer higher pay, because they are simply too frightened. These poor wretches. I know that in the big city of London, such superstitious views are not adhered to, but I still feel that it is best for your health to always stay inside after dark. The evening air is detrimental to you, and you may see or hear things that you don't understand. I only hope that you are comfortable and well here, and that you will stay with me for a few weeks, as I have said before. I wouldn't take to it kindly if you were to leave before I feel it is time for you to depart. I hope that you stay here with me for one more month from this date on. Staying here for so long did not suit me at all, but I didn't have the courage to say so. So I instead mentioned my employer, Mr. Hawkins. I will let him know. In fact, I have asked for his permission already, he said sternly. Yes, you will stay. There are many things to be found in my library, including works of art, but no ghost, he said, laughing heartily. As I have told you, these superstitious people talk about a white-clad woman wandering about the castle, but there is none other than the poor young girl whom you've already met living upstairs. He pointed up to the ceiling, and she is rumored to appear when danger lurks. Still, I ask that you remember if you ever see any glimpse of white that is no ghost, only her. She truly is dazzling enough to be dangerous, but not to you. She has, as I have told you, bats in the belfry, believing she is a noble lady whom she resembles in the portrait. She wanders around the castle looking for her cavalier, uh, her old lover. It is sad, but then again, it is also amusing. He spoke with such arrogant airs that I could barely stand to listen to him. So in an effort to say something, I asked whether his mentally disturbed relative would accompany him to London. No, no. Don't even let that idea cross your mind. As captivating as she is, she could easily end up in the claws of a Casanova, as you call them. I have read about them in your books as well. It would be a risk to take her to London. It's more suitable for her to stay here at home, in this secluded place. Don't you think so? I said something to the effect of him knowing what was best arrangements would be with regard to this matter. Of course, he said. But now it is nearly twelve o'clock. I can no longer rob you of your sleep and also have a few letters to write. Good night, my friend. Sleep well and long. All right, next entry of Thomas Harker's journal. The next evening, the Count asked me, have you not written your employer, the fine gentleman, Peter Hawkins, or anyone else since you came here? I told him truthfully that I had not done so, for I didn't know how I would send out such letters. He shrugged and stroked his mustache, saying, Yes, we here in the mountains lack many of the luxuries that you and your splendid London is a long way from here to Borgo, and unfortunately I do not have many servants to run errands for me. But if you write them this evening, I can also happen to have many I also have many letters to write, 
and I will take care of them all in one go. Please, write, my friend, he said, resting his hand firmly on my shoulder. Write to Mr. Peter Hawkins and anyone else you like. Tell them that you will feel comfortable here, as I hope you do, and that you're going to stay here for the period we have agreed upon. I made a final attempt to escape sooner from his custody. Oh, you troubled yourself too much for my sake, I said. Do you really want me to stay for so long? I am afraid that you will be bored to death having me here. I tried to sound as if I were making a joke. I have already told you, and so it stands, he replied in such a steely tone that it felt useless to make any further objections. When your employer made his arrangement with me regarding your trip here, the intention was, of course, to have my interest taken care of and that my needs would come first and foremost. As you will come to see, I don't ask for favors that I would not readily return. I bowed in silence. I haven't heard him speak in this fashion before, and I could not deny that I was growing irritated. But then he immediately changed his demeanor, saying, I did not expect that my friend's assistant would be so much to my liking. As you have turned out to be, you'll have to excuse my stubbornness and grant me the pleasure of your stay. I bowed again. How could I protest? I was and am convinced that although he is a man of great intellect, he must be a bit unhinged and perhaps even dangerous when something is done against his will. Given my current circumstances, I better avoid disobeying him. It would also be in my employer's best interest for me to give in to his wishes. I wrote to Wilma, my fiance, telling her more or less that I felt comfortable here and that the Count's castle was pleasurable. I also told her that the Count had asked me to stay with him for a few more weeks. I wrote another letter to my boss, informing him that the Count seemed happy with the real estate purchase and that he wanted me to stay with him at the castle for a while longer. When I finished the letters, the Count sat down at the table of the chair I had been sitting in and began to write his own while I read a book. However, I couldn't help but glance to see whom the Count's letters were addressed to. I found that the attended recipients included Samuel Billington in Whitby, Sentner's Shipping Company in Varna, Coretz Bank in London, and Klopstock's Bank in Vienna. When he was finished writing, the Count collected all the letters and set off, bidding me farewell. I have several things to take care of tonight and hope that you'll excuse me for saying goodnight earlier than usual. I hope that you have enough here to keep yourself entertained until you go to bed, he said, pointing to the bookcase. The food is on the table but I am in a hurry. From the ways his eyes flickered and his lips trembled, I could tell he was excited about something. This surprised me, as until then he seemed to be in such a balanced mood. Oh, after that noise, I'm slurping down a drink. All right, so continuing with Thomas Harper's journal, we're still in part one. This one is uh, labeled as May 10th. Looking through my journal entry from yesterday, I realize that I have been long-winded. No shit. Therefore, I'm determined to be more concise from now on. I went to bed early last night, extinguishing the lights not long after midnight. I felt as though I had just drifted off to sleep when it started growing light out and I was suddenly awoken by a sound from outside. It was the sound of a dying person. <laughs> That's very specific. A loud cry at first, but then it gradually got weaker. 
Fully awake now, I sat up in bed and a cold sweat and broke out all over my body. I could hear the scream echo in my head. In one sweep, I threw off my on my clothes and rushed to the window. I had forgotten to let the shutters down the night before, and when I opened the window, the cool air flowed in. I could vaguely make out the first trace of early sunrise in the east, but the fog lay over the ground so nothing could be seen. I peered out the window as far as I could and listened. The air was cold and damp, and though the thick room, I could make out the outlines of the castle walls a little farther away. After staring out the window for nearly half an hour, Jesus Christ, they really had fucking nothing to do back then, did they? I heard a shuffling noise out in the darkness. It sounded as though something was creeping along the outside of the castle wall, perhaps on a ledge, which had either been built for decoration or simply marked the transitions between the lower and upper levels of the castle. As it moved closer, I saw that it was a human form wrapped in a long gray coat with a sort of hood over his head. He crawled on hands and feet like a cat, although the narrow ledge along the narrow ledge, and but after some time he disappeared as if he had slipped through a crack in the wall or climbed into a window. In a desperate hurry, I closed the window and let down the shutters. After lighting the candles in my room, I was able to steal my nerve and calm down a bit. I shivered from the cold, so I went straight from my hip flask and took a mouthful of cognac. I wouldn't be funny. It wouldn't be funny if I became ill here. Then I checked whether the... Oh, that was another thing that was like in the original Bram Stoker's. It's just like constant, like constant references to not getting sick, not wearing yourself out um, through constant rest, uh, breaks, calmness from any kind of stress and thinking about things um, and an emphasis that liquor was like the best medicine. I can't count how many times Bram Stoker's Dracula that someone shouts out, man, go get the brandy. Like it is like very often. Um, it's reminiscent of uh, how many times someone asked for like a drink or like clinks drinks in the great Gatsby is how many times someone needs to fucking rest in Dracula. Then I checked whether the door was locked and made sure that the revolver was loaded. I laid it on the bedside table and got back under the blankets. If I'd seen something like this in London, a strangely dressed man creeping cautiously along a gutter, my only thought would be to fetch the nearest police officer and with his help find out whether this was some unfortunate sleepwalker or an unconventional burglar and then make sure he had been taken into custody. But as a stranger here, I have no idea what to do. I don't know my way around the castle. In fact, I don't even know where the Count sleeps. I also suspect that, save for the two of us, not a single living soul would be found in that part of the house. I considered the risk of making commotion to wake the Count so that I could tell him what it had witnessed, but I wasn't certain he'd take kindly to such a disturbance. I decided it was wisest to try to keep myself safe with the means that I had at hand and to pretend that everything was fine, keeping hold of my emotions. I intended to keep watch and not fall back asleep, but I dozed off all the same and didn't wake up until 10 o'clock when the sun was already shining brightly outside. 
I opened the window and inhaled the refreshing spring air with its forest fragrance. With daylight's arrival, the tenor of the previous night had vanished. I could have told myself that I, what I'd seen the night before was all a dream. Had the candle, had the burned down candle and revolver on the table had not been silent witnesses. I leaned out of the window to get a better look at the surrounding landscape. And it became even clearer to me that the castle was built on a large rock with nothing but cliffs reaching up on all sides. This would have made this stronghold impenetration. This would have made this stronghold impenetrable in former times. I saw that there were towers on the right and left sides of the castle. The tower to my right was in good shape, but the one to my left was dilapidated. Many of its walls were covered with cracks and its roof was collapsed. The human figure I saw the night before had come from this part of the castle. I leaned even further out the window and saw large rocks on the ground below. They had probably plummeted from the surrounding cliffs. Farther out from the rocks, I could see shrubbery and forest, but in the distance beyond the trees, there were only bare mountains. I spotted two or three solitary farms farther away, but otherwise there was no human habitation or signs of civilization to be seen. I sheltered my eyes from the sun with my hand so that it couldn't, wouldn't hinder my sight. Then my eyes fell upon something white in the bushes to my left. I thought it might be laundry spread out to dry, and I took out my pocket telescope to get a better look. But then I saw it was a human being. He or she was lying on their back, hands and feet stretched out, and they seemed to be sleeping there in the bushes. As I hadn't seen a living soul outside the castle since I arrived, I was glad to see another person here. I lifted up the spyglass and looked again, but then I sank down in my chair next to me, shivering with horror. I didn't want to see more. It was a woman, still a young girl, in fact. I saw her as if she had been right next to me. She had a pleasant face and a shapely figure. She was dead. I want that on my fucking tombstone. She had a pleasant face and a shapely figure. She is dead. Her head was bent backwards and was halfway sunken into the moss. Her black hair was loose as if someone had torn it, and her mouth and eyes were wide open. Her expression reflected nothing but great fear. Her clothes had been ripped open across the breast so that her neck and bosom were bare, and there on her throat was an open wound. Blood had flowed from it down her shoulders, drenching her clothes. She was wearing a coarse white woolen garb, like the woman in this country do. Her arms were stretched out as if she had dug her hands into the moss in agony. After a few minutes, I looked through my monocular again to make sure that I hadn't been mistaken. Everything was just as described. This must have been the reason for the cry of distress I had heard. But how could this horrible thing have happened? I wondered if the wolves had done it, if there was so many of them in the woods. But the Count had told me that they don't attack humans, especially not this time of year, when they have enough prey to catch in the forest. Or had this girl been murdered? Wolves would hardly have left her like that, but a murderer might have. She was half hidden in the bushes, and there was no real roads nearby. I grabbed my hat and put the revolver in my pocket, and made to rush out to where the body lay. 
There had to be some path along the rock that would lead me there. I ran down the stairs to exit the building, but as I reached the entrance hall, I remembered that I hadn't placed a foot outside the class castle walls since my arrival here. Because I had slept so much during the day and the Count had spent so much time with me at night to improve his English, I hadn't once been outside the castle's enclosure. I tried opening the gate, but it was closed shut and there was no key in the lock. I looked around for the key, but it was nowhere to be found. I tried to force open the gate, but to no avail. The entrance hall is large and there are doors leading in many different directions. I tried opening every one of them, but they were all firmly locked. As a free man, I am not accustomed to having my movements restrained, but now I realized I was a prisoner in this castle. Well, no fucking shit, Thomas. That's fucking been obvious for a while. Already earlier, I'd wanted to roam the castle grounds with no plan as to what I'd do outside. But now that I had seen the girl's body, I could think of nothing else but to get to her and, if possible, try to help, call for assistance, and with the support of the authorities, seek out the murderer. That is, I wanted to do what any civilized man would want to do in my situation. But only now did I realize what that situation actually was. I thought back on everything I had seen and heard here, and now my fate looked bleaker than ever. Of course, I knew there had to be many other exits. But when I found another entrance hall, all of its doors were also locked. There was no place else I could go but to return to my room where, if anywhere within these glum walls, I felt secure. I stood there restlessly, and my face flushed with agitation, because as I thought about the Count's behavior since my arrival, it dawned on me that he deliberately prevented me from getting out of the castle. Every night he had kept me up till cock crow, so that I would sleep through the most of the day, for courtesy's sake. I've barely left my room until he returned. And so the time has passed and I've hardly had his chance to take stock of how many days I've been here. It's clear that the Count is quite strange. His behavior, at least, is like no one else's. Perhaps by keeping me here, he is taking advantage of my help, especially as he has been seen that I am rather pliant, but I simply cannot accept being locked up like a criminal. I looked around and saw no other exit from my room nor from any other room I dwelled in, except down the stairs that I had ascended on the first night, or into the hallway leading through the wing of the castle. But in this hallway, too, all the doors were locked. Next, I tried going up the stairs leading to the portrait gallery. When I took hold of the handles of the big oak door, I was amazed to find it unlocked. The sun shone in through the windows of the long gallery, and the portraits seemed to have a different aura about them than they did when I saw them at night, lit by the weak glow of a still young moon, and with the help of candlelight. Nevertheless, the images still had an effect on me. I suddenly started to feel rather sick, on the verge of breaking down. I took only a brief look at the paintings, even though it felt as if the stately portrait at the end of the hall was pulling me towards it with almost irresistible force but I was determined not to let anything delay me until I examined the castle as widely as I could. On the opposite side of the gallery, two doors were standing wide open. Okay, I'll read for about nine more minutes, so I have an hour. The door on the left had a room in a large round tower with strange several windows, 
but there were no doors in this room other than the one from the portrait gallery. Next to this door was another open door. I fucking... I hate these goddamn fucking maze architecture books. Like, yeah. I get it, like, but, like, I don't... Do we care, you know, about how many doors and windows there are all the time? I don't know. Next to this door is another door, and then the door to window, and blah, blah. Leading to a long series of rooms of various sizes, they all faced west, and I guess that they had made up a large part of the castle's west wing. I had no time to examine these apartments more closely, but I judged by the look of things that there were no staircases leading to the other living areas of the building. I assumed that such a set of stairs were somewhere to be found, but the last door in this series of rooms, which probably led to a hallway or exit, was securely locked so I couldn't open it. All the rooms were furnished in a typical way of an old castles, with furniture originating from different periods, but nothing in present-day style. So, I really have to pee, so maybe I'll stop um, this reading tonight um, in the middle of this section to just recap that I don't recall this particular scene, maybe I'm wrong, um, within Bram Stoker's original Dracula of this sort of castle being depicted like a maze, like he couldn't get through, um, and the gallery wall. Um, but I do recall it in the recent BBC version of Dracula. Um, in which I'm on episode two now. There's only three episodes, but it's depicted as if um, the Harker character uh, literally has to find his way through a castle that's like a maze, and he needs an actual map to navigate it because it's so intricate. And in the end, um, he finds some hidden rooms and doorways um, behind the actual portrait gallery. So I'm wondering if the writers of the BBC version of Dracula um, got their inspiration from one of these translations, or if maybe I'm just not remembering that scene in the original Bram Stoker's, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, but that is interesting, that emphasis on this kind of portrait gallery, hidden hallway type of thing. So anyhow, thank you for listening. Um, and I will continue on. We have uh, a couple. We have a lot left. But at, at the episode, uh, we've got to continue on with finishing up uh, part one of Thomas Harper in the, in the castle. And then we're going to finally get to meet the Mina and Lucy characters, which I'm excited about that. We'll probably have a few more episodes of part one and then we'll move on to that. So thank you again for listening. Bye-bye.